Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day in a rather deserted city of Westminster, it must be said, as once again, we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner, and I'm joined on the air today by Joanne Miles. Joanne is the company director of Miles Hairdressing and Beauty Salon in Edinburgh, Scotland. Joanne, welcome to the programme, and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you, Scott. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure having you on the air with us and thanks ever so much for your time in coming on to uh, today's programme. Now, the purpose, Joanne, of this podcast series is to really gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the present COVID-19 situation and business leaders having to feel their way through this crisis and guide their businesses through it. Tell me, for somebody working in the services industry, such as yourself, How has it been for you in trying to navigate the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's posed a significant challenge. Uh, Yes, well, I suppose um, we're all sort of in in the same uh, boat, really. Um, So in that way, kind of talking to friends and and family, we're all sort of uh, trying to navigate through things together. Um, We've obviously locked down, uh, so we're closed at the moment. I'm just really trying to keep up to date with everything that's been offered from, you know, the, the government. Um, I do feel, I, ideally, it would have been better that we locked down a bit sooner, to be honest. Uh, but I'm really thankful for the support that's been provided by the government. Um, certainly, the furlough scheme has gone really well for us. Um, so, yeah, it's um, certainly a, a challenge. And... Um, try very hard not to be stressed out about it um you know just be patient and wait on the information coming and act as promptly as you can on the information as it comes through um certainly things like applying into the furlough scheme um you know that came back within about five days and all my team were able to be paid and put through the payroll so i was really quite impressed with that part of things it's good to hear that um, getting access to um, the support measures that the government has put in place um, has been sort of quite easy in that respect. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said as well for this idea that maybe the lockdown could have been triggered um, a little bit sooner. And it's been a fine balance between being proactive and being reactive at this time for business and government alike, hasn't it? Because if we think about Italy, for example, their lockdown began on the 9th of March and we only followed suit on the 23rd. So quite some time, really. Whereas they, of course, basically should everything down quite quickly we were a little bit more I suppose less a fair in a way just letting things play out a little bit before deciding to take action as and when we did um if we take that scenario away from politics and away from times of crisis just for a moment Joanne would you describe yourself as a leader within business who likes to get on top of difficulties dive straight in as soon as they do crop up or do you like to take a little bit of a back seat let matters develop a little bit and then maybe take action from there no, I think it's best to try and, um, you know, take control of situations. Really, the sooner the better, you know, as the old saying goes, nip things in the bud. Um, and, you know, definitely I think that is is a good approach. Go by your gut instinct and um, really, you know, that, that sort of engagement I think pays off. 
And of course, working in the services industry, things have really sort of shut down physically in terms of the business for yourselves at the moment. But quite often we're seeing business leaders really being proactive as well in continuing to engage with their employees, for example, and really maintaining that sort of close knit feel ready for when things kick back off again. Um, Have you found that to be quite challenging during this period with everybody working remotely and um, not necessarily having that sort of common place where they come together um, every day of the week? Well, it's funny you should say that. Um, part of the whole sort of furlough scheme, um, you have to agree not to actually do any work at all, which includes anything on social media. Um, and I don't know if there's a bit of confusion about that within my industry, but certainly I have mm. seen a lot of companies being very active in social media and uh, communicating with clients and stuff. Um, as, as I read it, it, it's, it seems very clear that, you know, if your team are part of the furlough scheme, then they they can't communicate on social media. They can't do anything that's deemed towards, um, you know, working at all. Um, although I have questioned that part of things, because obviously the whole idea of the furlough scheme is to allow companies to bounce back when we are allowed to go back. Um, and I think that if they had made it a bit more clear to say that we were allowed to communicate on social media and do what we could, then our companies may be possibly in a better shape for us to actually return to. Um, you know, so it's something that has have actually sort of considered. Um, you know, um, parts of that don't make an awful lot of sense. Uh, so yeah. I can certainly see where you're coming from in that sense, Joanne, and it highlights the importance um, in leadership of clarity and transparency, doesn't it, that to make sure that when facts are relayed and especially regulations are relayed, it's important that everybody can understand exactly how they should be adhered to. Yes, absolutely. I made it very clear with all of my team, um, you know, the guidelines on this and obviously to protect them and to protect the company within the furlough scheme that, uh, you know, anything deemed uh, from a professional manner on, on uh, social media, uh, we shouldn't be doing at this time. So, but as I say, you know, on the bigger picture, it might have been nice if we could have actually kept communicating with our clients through this um, in order to sort of return to work uh, stronger. I can completely see uh, where you're coming from uh, there, Joanne, absolutely. And uh, we talked a lot uh, just now about um, your own sort of leadership style in a way and how you uh, take a very proactive approach to things. But could you, perhaps, could you perhaps tell me what you think some of the influences have been behind that leadership style that you've developed over the last few years? Influences. Um, I started uh, working for myself at a very young age, Um so I think I've been very much self-taught in my style um, and I suppose learning from mistakes um, and, you know, just uh, just trying to invest in myself with training and um, education from the sort of managerial level um, has helped towards sort of, you know, building into the position I'm in now. Um, I do think sort of, you know, looking at leadership, um, you have to understand that you work for them. Um, so I need to kind of be present for them and, you know, serving their needs. Um, I have to always be uh, honest with them and have complete transparency um, 
to sort of earn their trust. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Um, involving them as well on uh, team uh, decisions, I think, is important. If you're going to work as a team, then, and they're going to be committed to what you're doing, then I think it's only fair that, you know, at times I might run run ideas by them and just see how they feel about things before sort of going forward. Um, I think as well you have to take full responsibility um, for everything. I mean, if if you are sort of, you know, you're controlling it all, you have to understand that if something goes wrong, it's your fault, no matter what that is. Um, you know, if, if someone's had a problem or whatever, you have to always reflect on, you know, well, that's my fault. I, I should have had them trained better so that that didn't happen. It must always, always fall back to you. Um, and I suppose, you know, turning, you know, negatives into positives that way by sort of, um, by sort of giving training during those times is important as well. Um, so, yeah, um I think um, knowing when you need to sort of delegate um, jobs to other people that might have a better understanding, um, you know, sort of recently in the uh, during the sort of COVID nineteen, I've sort of delegated a lot of the the roles that I would normally do. I would normally do all my own payroll and that type of thing, Um, but I thought during this time I really wanted a professional to be navigating us all through this just to make sure we were absolutely mm. doing things, you know, 100% by the book. Um, so, yeah, I think all of that is really important. And there's a lot of pressure on leaders day to day, isn't there, given the fact that the book does stop with you, as you say, and you're often looked to as the leader for the person, as the person who's supposed to have all of these answers. And in great times of uncertainty like this one, and we're obviously being a lot more self-aware as well, it's kind of gradually dawning on leaders that they're not always going to have all of the answers, they're going to have limitations. And so that comes with a certain pressure at times like this, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can only do what you can do. Um, you know, you can only go by your own instinct and what feels right and, you know, play by the rules um, 100%. I think having a sense of integrity and doing things the right way um, just shines through. Um, you know, we're all only human. So um, mm. I think if if you're in a space as someone who has got a lot of responsibility, if you're if you're in a headspace yourself of feeling calm and in control within your own life, then that allows you to um, definitely perform much better uh, within sort of you know more um, responsible roles. Oh, definitely, yeah. Maintaining a cool head, even though you may not have the exact answer that someone is looking for is absolutely massive. And um, it's integral in guiding um, a business through times of crisis as well. But interestingly as well, uh, Joanne, you talked about one of your biggest teachers in your business career being experienced. The fact that you started um, going into business for yourself quite early on and you've really learned from making mistakes. And do you think that on the road to becoming a good leader, an integral part of doing just that, becoming a good leader, is making mistakes and being willing to learn from them and embrace the lessons that you learn from that? Well, not just in that scenario, but in life in general. Um, you know, if you if you make a mistake, you must learn, you must grow. 
um, you know, and you must try and um, embrace the positives on that. Um, you know, as someone that works with a lot of younger people that are just at the beginning of their career, um, you know, if something comes up and they feel they've made a mistake, they take it so, uh, you know, so personally and, mm. you know, really beat themselves up. And um, it's, you know, it's really trying to stress to them, you know, this is this is a actually a good moment for you. You know, you're never going to do that again. You know, you've grown at this time. Um, and it's, you know, sort of easy to see when you've got a lot of experience, you know, looking at sort of someone at, at the at the start of their career. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have to learn by our mistakes. We have to grow. Um, I would say don't make that the only way that you learn. You know, try uh, try and, you know, reach out to as much different areas of things that, you know, if you're not academic, then there, you know, there's other ways. We live in such a, a way just now where we've got so much information to hand that, you know, we can access in so many ways of sort of videos and, you know, audio books, that type of thing, um, and ways in which we can understand and learn and grow and, you know, um, be better equipped to sort of cope with different um, different scenarios without actually things going wrong. You know, it'd be a, a terrible way if we, you know, always counted on things to go wrong to actually grow. I think you're absolutely right. And we shouldn't rely constantly on making mistakes as being the learning curves that we need. But I think you're right in saying um, among the younger generation, especially that there is a little bit of a fear of failure in a way where maybe there shouldn't be as much. And we should be saying, look, from time to time, and we don't want to be doing it all the time, you are going to make mistakes. But when they do happen to come back and there are setbacks, it's a matter of being able to just embrace that, learn from it and use that as a positive experience, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I believe that, you know, for me, the qualities that I look for uh, within my team um, are uh, attitude and effort, I think, are, are two of the sort of highest qualities um, because, you know, everything else you can sort of, you can train, you know, train them to go from strength to strength and their sort of skill set and abilities. Um but if they've got a bad attitude or they don't want to put in the effort, then it's very difficult to work with a person and try and get them to grow. Um, you know, if they've got a great attitude and they want to put the effort in, then even if it's something that naturally doesn't come easy, um, you know, they will keep trying and, you know, they will eventually succeed with that sort of good positive energy. Exactly. And considering that something such as a good attitude and sort of that self-motivation, that desire to succeed, if you will, does have to come from within. Do you think that some of the greatest leaders out there are maybe born as great leaders? Or do you think it's something that you can learn and develop just like you develop skills throughout your career? Um, I'm not sure. It's, I suppose that's such a personal thing, really. Um, speaking just Personally, I always felt um, that I, I wanted Moan Salon from such a very, very early age. Um, I always had a good work ethic um, and liked to work and had my own ideas of how things should, should be. And, you know, speaking for myself, that was definitely something that was came from within. I didn't ever sort of learn to be like that. Um, so, yeah, but I suppose everyone's different in how they arrive to 
you know, uh, be places in life. Um, but I, I, I do feel an element of when you're you're doing something that you absolutely love and you're doing it with passion, you get a certain flow that things just, you know, flow in the right direction. And, um, you know, that's when I suppose the magic happens is when you sort of focus on doing things that you really, really love and enjoy. So, yeah, I think that's important. I would certainly say um, that uh, for anybody tuning into this, that um, one of the common bits of uh, good advice that um, a lot of business leaders that I've spoken to always tend to give is always find something that you're passionate about if you do want to sort of plan your own uh, route um, into business. And if we think about your passions and the future of that as well, uh, Joanne, before we do wrap things up on the programme today, um, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and Four Miles Hairdressing and also what you hope to achieve, not just within that time, but also when we begin to emerge from the current COVID situation and we look to the future as well? Well, at Miles Hairdressing, we have a, quite a solid sort of platform of um, areas that we, we kind of, focus on um, that, you know, we feel are important to us. Um, and those are uh, communication, good communication, um, education and creativity, uh, client experience and value, um, you know, giving the, the, the client good value in relation to the experience that they're getting. Mm. And also integrity, um, you know, being sort of charity aware, sustainable, opting for sort of local, organic, um, where possible. Um, and the other last thing is building great relationships. Um, going forward, education was firmly in our plans before the whole COVID-19 crisis. Um, and that will remain, hopefully, to be in our plans, sort of looking forward to develop um, our sort of education part for all our at all levels really. Um, in the sort of client experience, obviously safety is going to be very important um, going forward. So you know we're thinking about things like taking client temperatures as they come in. Obviously, all the teams uh, having temperatures taken before they start their working day, having disposable items. Um, you know to create a safe environment for our team and clients um, and going forward as I said just um, from the sort of integrity you know running a business that we can be really proud of um, really feeling into sort of areas of um, using products that are um, sustainable and um, you know kind of feeling into that area to provide our clients those kind of options um, that's super important to me personally. And you know what I think would be absolutely fantastic, uh, Joanne, even though we are just about out of time on today's programme, is if in the next few months when we start to see things change, we could perhaps even have you back on the air with us just to talk about how things are panning out and catch up on how the uh, the business is doing as things begin to open up again. Um, but for now, I have to say it's been a thoroughly insightful and also really enjoyable experience having you on today's programme with us. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on and speak with me today for the listeners' benefit. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, Sir Joanna. Thank you very much. And do continue to take care and stay safe, especially with everything still going on. Absolutely. You too, Scott. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. 
That was Joanne Miles, the company director of Miles Hairdressing and Beauty Salon in Edinburgh. Uh, Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. 
commerce, and I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. 
hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually Uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. 
So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up 
uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. 
I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, 
led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakira Starmer's 
major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.